Medical breakthroughs require medical research. Medical research requires patient testing and data collection. The most common form of capturing patient data is through surveys, and most of those surveys today are done on paper. Surveying patients to understand the side effects or the benefits of trial drugs or treatments and getting accurate results out of these are critical aspects of medical research. Traditionally, these surveys are filled and read manually, and they're entered into a database by a human operator. In these steps, there's too much room for human error, from unreadable handwritings to typos being entered into the database. Electronic data capture platforms were created out of this need for easy and accurate data collection for researchers. By enabling online survey creation and result collection, EDC, or electronic data capture, platforms have improved medical research immensely. However, these platforms are complex to design. Where patient medical data is concerned, privacy and security are of extremely high importance. Compliance with laws that protect anonymity and privacy of the patients is necessary. And on top of all this, the platform must be easy to use and reliable. Castor EDC is a company specializing in EDC for medical research. It's founded in the Netherlands and it's active in many countries around the globe. And today's guest is Dirk Arts, who is the founder and CEO of Castor EDC. We talk about electronic data capture platforms, how Castor EDC overcame the engineering and design problems of the electronic data capture problem, and how they comply with the laws and also how their business model works. Before we get started, we're hiring a creative operations lead. If you're an excellent communicator, please check out our job posting for creative operations at softwareengineeringdaily.com jobs. It's a great job for someone who just graduated a boot camp or somebody with a background in the arts who's making their way into technology. If you want to be creative, if you want to learn more about engineering, if you want to work remotely, you can check out this job at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Derek Arts is the founder and CEO of Castor Electronic Data Capture. Derek, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Great to be here. So I want to start by talking about medical research. Medical research is conducted by universities, it's conducted by drug companies, consultancies. What is the purpose of medical research? So I think the easiest way to explain it is to take an example. So say we have diabetes as a disease and we want to see if there is a better way to treat patients with that disease. So we have, say, medication A, uh, which is the current medication that everyone gets, and then we have some new drug that's medication B. Now, if you want to prove that medication B is superior to A, you want to run some statistical analyses, right? To run those, you need data. So basically, in every form of medical research, we need data to be able to run the statistical analyses that either prove or disprove our, our hypotheses. So yeah, that's basically the common denominator you see running through all these branches of, of, of medical research. Data is at the heart of everything to be able to prove or disprove a certain theory or find evidence you know, for, for the effectiveness of a new drug. Medical research has been going on for quite a long time. What are some of the systemic problems in the way that medical research is conducted? Well, the list is quite long, 
to be honest, fortunately. I think currently uh, there's still a lot of uh, you know reinventing the wheel going on. So there's a lot of researchers in the world that focus on their own projects and their own departments and are not looking around to collaborate with researchers from other countries or even other universities. Um, so there's actually a degree of competitiveness between universities within countries, which is you know, strange. And like from my perspective, if, if you're an alien looking down on the world, you'd be very surprised to see how we deal with research and medicine because you'd expect the entirety of humanity to work together and to collaborate to, to find cures for diseases that plague you know humanity as a whole. But uh, what's actually happening is this, this sort of yeah, competitiveness of different research groups trying to run their own projects, not collaborating, and then ending up with yeah, slightly similar studies that investigate you know a similar thing, but not exactly in the same way. So instead of you know having one large study that studies one thing properly, you have the, all these independent studies that do things slightly different, which is just very inefficient. And to make it even worse, after everyone has done their own little uh, study, the data that's been captured is usually you know not made available for reuse or sharing. So about 85% of the resources and time we spend on medical research don't uh, ultimately contribute to patient health, either because what was investigated you know, wasn't, wasn't effective or because uh, data that was captured was never shared or made reusable, so no one could actually benefit from the data that was already captured. And then you know, finally, a lot of these scientific publications, so if you do medical research, the ultimate goal is to, to create a scientific publication that gets published by a scientific journal like Lancet or New, New England Journal. Journal of Medicine or some of these other uh, journals. But these usually are paywalled. So you have to have a subscription to this magazine to to read about the evidence that was discovered, which I think is very strange because it means that two-thirds of the world don't actually have legal access to to the scientific evidence that, that has been discovered recently. So I think yeah, across the board, starting at the defining the, the research protocol right up to the point of publication, um, you know, there's big issues uh, going on. And course what we're focusing on mostly is the data the data aspect of it so what we're trying to do is make sure that data that's captured through our platform is actually standardized and made reusable so it can actually serve its purpose you know 10 years from now and doesn't just end up in a drawer somewhere which is what usually happens with uh, with data once the original author is done with it and and we'll get to that but just to connect to some of the points that you brought up that competitiveness the competitiveness between different medical research institutions is that connected to the same culture that makes people compete to, there's that term scooping, like if you're doing research in the life sciences, you might be competing with some other university and you don't want to get scooped. You don't want them to figure out what you're doing or to release a publication in Nature or one of these other paywalled journals before you have a chance to release it. Is this the same kind of mentality that you see there? Yeah, totally. It's exactly the you know it's the same thing basically. The whole culture in medical research is is completely broken. It should be about having impact. It should be about doing worthwhile research and making it accessible to the world. But the culture that has come into existence is all about impact factor and how often am I cited and am am I the most cited professor in my institute? And that's not necessarily doing of the medical research themselves. It's sort of the system that evolved to this state, but now we need to break out of that state. And then you know scooping is, is part of it. So 
I want to say that some competitiveness is nice, right? Like that's the reason we also have the economy uh, that we have. You know, we're not fans of communism. Um, it's good that there's some competitiveness in the market because you want people to try to improve on each other. But currently, it's it's, it's not really about that. It's really about you know getting the the biggest publications. And I think very often uh, humanity would actually benefit from more collaboration and and working together and and sharing in you know sharing in in the the credit that you get from from worthwhile research. So your company is Castor EDC, that's Electronic Data Capture. And as you said, much of what you're trying to do is to collect data, get it in a standardized fashion, well, allow researchers to collect data. It's a software platform that allows medical research to be performed in a more standardized fashion. So as an example, so that if you have a drug company that's trying to evaluate the side effects of a pill, for example, they need to document everything that happens to the person that's taking the pill. They need to have control groups that are closely monitored, and they need to document everything that happens to the control group. How is this typically done? How is this documentation of what happens to two groups in a a medical research trial, how is that typically monitored and documented if we're talking about the world before Castor EDC? So typically, what you would see is people use paper, which is very cumbersome, and it's still actually very common today for, for several reasons. But so what they would do is they create these forms, for instance, in 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 a word processor, and they would just tweak them until they they felt it contained everything they they wanted to capture in, in terms of data, and they would just print them out and and send them to these institutes that would you know participate in the study, and then research nurses usually. So these are nurses specifically trained to to support research activities. They would have to, you know, go to the patient, sit with the patient, go through the patient file and extract all this information and write it down on paper. And then the ridiculous part is that then they would gather all these papers, send them back to the researcher, the principal investigator, and they would have to copy it all into a computer because while, uh, you know, data was still being captured on paper and it is still happening today, analyses has, have long since moved to the computer because everyone wants to use all cool things like logistic regression, which is something that obviously requires a machine because you can't do that on paper, um, you know, find the coefficients for a regression formula. So you have first people writing on paper and then, for, and then sending it to the researcher and then them copying it into the computer, which obviously is extremely inefficient and very error prone. So that was the, the era before uh, before Castor. And then there was this sort of intermediate solution where people would use Excel, for instance, so especially in academic research. So in, in commercial research, uh, Big Pharma has been better. They just use extremely expensive EDC tools that already exist in the market that are not accessible for the average researcher. But so the, the academic researcher, if they weren't using paper, they would sometimes try to use Excel as a data capture tool. But yeah, that's almost impossible to use with, with more than two people. And what you would be doing is you'd be typing straight into your sheet where other patient data is also present. So you can understand that that's maybe even more error prone than, than the paper-based solution. Um, so paper and Excel are basically the, the things we saw, you know, we, we see most of our users use before they encounter Castor EDC. Aren't there other platforms for doing this kind of electronic data capture? Hasn't there been software around for a while that is custom made for this? Yeah, there's, there's so like I said, in, in commercial studies, there's a few big EDC vendors that have been around for a while. And even in the academic space, there were, there are a few. So the most famous one is RedCap. That's used a lot in the United States, which is a pretty good platform. But when I started Castor uh, as a medical, so I'm a medical doctor myself and now also a PhD, but back then just an MD. 
all the people around me had no access to these tools. So all I knew was all the researchers, in, at least in the Netherlands, don't know how to access these tools or where to find these tools. So that's the reason I, I started building this uh, this platform. And uh, it's still mostly true today. The, the tools that, that exist either require you to set up your own server, um, you know, to configure the, the, the tool itself, uh, to, to sort of help yourself when you're, when you're building a study. So there's no sort of real SaaS solution that really helps the researcher get off the ground quickly uh, without requiring any programming or, or server knowledge, basically. And that's, that's really where we are different from, from what exists. Oh, the, so the old ones were stuff you had to install? Yeah, so for instance, Open Clinic has an open source solution, but you have to set it up on your own server, for instance. So that's, you know, for, for medical research, that's impossible. So in, you're dependent on your local IT department in your hospital, for instance, to do that. So in the US, we see quite a few hospitals that have RedCap installed managed and managed locally. So then you don't have to do it yourself. But we still feel that, you know, RedCap is built by Vanderbilt University. And I think it's uh, it works well, but we really you know start with the medical researcher in mind. And we really take into account the fact that these people have no programming knowledge whatsoever and really want to get off the ground as quickly as possible. So that's why we make the whole process of creating your forms and setting up your study and setting up randomization uh, you know, extremely easy and extremely user-friendly because you know we want the technology to work for our users and not the other way around. So as you said, you're an MD with a PhD yourself. How did you find yourself building a business for electronic data capture? Yeah, so it was just very organic. I used to do freelance development work during my medical training. I mean, I was always looking for things to build, things to improve processes or improve healthcare where I was, uh, you know, training as a medical doctor. And then I encountered this problem where I saw people trying to capture data in Excel sheets and on paper and stuff. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. So I basically built the first version of the platform myself and, and sold it to friends and colleagues of friends, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started growing just by word of mouth and it grew to what it is today. So it's pretty impressive yeah, it's been a pretty impressive ride so far. It's been six years now since I you know, built the first version myself. And it's just because there's a big need. There's a huge need, actually, for, for what we offer. Um, so that's why it can grow organically really rapidly without any significant marketing or sales effort, to be honest. How heavily regulated is this stuff? Is it like electronic data capture? Quite heavily regulated, I would say. It depends what kind of study you're running. So if you're you know, testing a new drug, it's really heavily regulated. But if you're doing a patient questionnaire survey where you, say, want to measure satisfaction with a new uh, physiotherapeutical procedure, for instance, it's, it's not as heavily regulated. So it really depends on what you're, what you're investigating. But what we try to do is basically provide all, all the sort of um, provide a fully compliant platform out of the box even for people who don't necessarily need it. Because I think, you know, if you can be compliant, it's better to be compliant, especially if it doesn't, you know, slow you down. And so we try to make it very easy for everyone to use this compliant environment that meets all these requirements that's, that are set forth for um, for medical trials, basically, or, or medicine trials, as you say, drug trials. And those are heavily regulated. So I want to help people understand what the software does. So if I'm a researcher... I've, maybe I've got a computer in my medical research room and it's running Castor EDC and then the patient comes into my room and then the patient starts uh, telling me stuff about how they're reacting to the drug and we go through a back and forth and I'm just entering this data into Castor EDC. Is that the typical workflow? Maybe you could give me some descriptions for prototypical ways that people are using Castor EDC. As this is one of the ways, so the first step is they have a protocol for the study. So what am I going to research? What data do I need to run the statistical analysis? So they're going to define what data points they need. 
from that, they will build, build their study in Castor. So they define their own forms. We have about 25 field types. Um, so you can imagine a form builder type of interface that you also see in, in things like Google Forms, for instance, but then way more elaborate with all kinds of validation you know, uh, possibilities to, to make sure that all the data that goes in is of, of the highest possible quality. So first, they define all their forms. And once that's done, they, they start their study. They invite their colleagues from all around the world to you know, add patients from other hospitals. So that speeds up the recruitment time or actually, you know, uh, lowers the recruitment time, speeds up the recruitment, but also ensures that you have a nice sample, right? So if you just take patients from home foreign hospital, there could be a potential bias. So it's always nicer to include, you know, a larger population. So then you have multiple people, multiple hospitals have, using these forms or ECRFs as they're, as they're called, electronic case report forms. And yeah, sometimes they would see the patient in the outpatient clinic, for instance, and they would type straight into the um, uh, into the ECRFs. Uh, sometimes they would just go through the patient file and copy data. Uh, we actually also provide an EHR importer using uh, yeah, HL7 Fire, which is the, the, the standardized way of exchanging medical information. It's, it's quite commonly used now in the US as well. So what we do is we, we take patient directly from the digital uh, patient file and import it into a study. So that, that saves you a lot of typing, obviously. And then finally, we also uh, allow people to send surveys to their patients. So then it's the patient actually entering the data on their iPad, for instance, uh, from home. And so there's there's basically three ways to, to get data into the platform. And then there, there's the obvious CSV import. So if you have some other data source, they can generate a CSV file. You can also import that. So basically, using all these sources of data, you can, you can build your data set. Um, oh yeah, and then I forgot to mention our API. So we have a RESTful API that can be used to connect uh, Caster to say a mobile app or uh, some other platform. So you know, Caster is really sort of the hub where all the data it comes together and uh, helps you sort of define a structured, hopefully standardized data set that you can then easily analyze once you've included say 500 patients. And then do people want to do the analysis inside of Caster or do they want to export it to some other tool for analysis? Yeah, right now, we don't really provide a lot of possibilities for analysis in the platform. We are, are adding R and R Shiny to our platform. So uh, people who are comfortable with R will be able to you know, just stay in the platform. Uh, but right now, a lot of people would export it. So people want to use SPSS or SOS or Stata. And we just provide a standardized export that they can import directly. And we provide libraries for R to connect straight to the API so you can actually basically run your analysis in your own R environment um, and just pull in the data from our API, potentially. So you alluded to something earlier that was pretty interesting, which is the fact that you want to make the data highly standardized so that people can potentially use other people's data in their studies. So you could potentially get economies of scale or network effects to that research. So the main risk I see there is... is if different researchers have different standards for their data collection practices, isn't there kind of an uneven standard? Like I'm, you know, maybe I'm running a clinic and, you know, testing for something that is not as rigorously uh, monitored as as testing a uh, a drug for cancer medication, for example. But then the cancer medication people might use my data. And if my data was collected in a way that was a little messier than the original, than the cancer people have standards for, isn't that kind of problematic? 
That's a great question. And I think a question that all the people who aren't going totally crazy with the big data hype, if that's still going on, but uh, they should ask themselves because that's a, that's a big problem. And you can't always solve it. But I think for the most part, these standardized data sets can be used to do mostly hypothesis finding. So initially, you would say, okay, we we use these combined sort of... So in the ideal world, what we're trying to achieve is all the data that's being captured through Castor is fully standardized and machine readable, right? That's what we're trying to, to do with machine learning, help people add the required metadata to their study fields um, to make all their data machine readable. Now, imagine you have a thousand data sets that are all um, machine readable. You could use something like Sparkle, uh, which I hope the, the listeners to this, this podcast uh, know about. But it's basically a query language for, for semantic data. And ideally, you would sort of use these, uh, these say, 1,000 data sets to, to discover new potential hypotheses that you would then test in a more structured, formal way. Right? So that's the easy answer to this question. You don't do it to answer your hypotheses, but you do it to, to define new hypotheses that you can then test in a, in a more rigorous uh, fashion. However, I think well, while we're progressing with helping computers understand the nature of the data and the origin of the data, so not just adding metadata to the individual data points, but also metadata on the study level, I think more and more we can also start to use these data sets for, for answering our questions directly. But then we really need to take into account what you just mentioned. So what was the original purpose for this data being, being captured and to what kind of rigor, what kind of standards were the people held capturing this data? What, what tools were used? You know, was there an audit trail? Um, were there input checks, etc.? But the more metadata we add to our data sets, the easier it will become for an algorithm to determine what data sets can be combined to, to sort of create a really high quality new data set and, and what data sets can be combined but can't really be used for anything but basically exploring and, and, and finding new ideas, basically. So I think the answer lies in being way more rigorous in defining what data was captured and how and with what purpose and uh, what standard was used. And I think then we will also be, be able to solve this challenge. And, and, and sometimes we won't because the data of, of some of the data sets included will be too low to be reliable, uh, but can still contain you know valuable insights that in a future study um, might prove to be you know the cure to a new disease. When medical research is being conducted in the classic way, or even with with Castor, so when people are collecting data sets of some number of people, and then they're deciding that, okay, based on this medical trial, we have determined that this drug does not cause side effect X, or we've, we've determined that this drug does not cause side effect X over time horizon A. Is there well-defined standards for how many people you need, like the sample size you need, how long you're doing these tests for. And more importantly, I'm guessing there are some standardized numbers, like the amount of people that you need to test, the time horizon you need to test. I'm, I'm sure there are some standards in place for that. But are they rational? Do they actually convincingly prove that, for example, medication does not have side effects? Because like, we're having this conversation in the context of, I don't know if, if you know, but the American medical system, the hospital system, is pretty messed up today. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And I, I mean, healthcare globally has, has all kinds of issues. And it almost feels sometimes like we're still in the bloodletting days where we're just we're really guessing and the the drugs that we use are such blunt instruments and you know we have no idea how nutrition works and all of these things can certainly be alleviated maybe potentially solved by doing large scale enough studies but you know it's just like you get to a certain point where 
you know, if you grow up in the information age, you start to realize how on earth is research being conducted with enough of a sample size and with enough diligence when they're doing it, you know, across small populations, the populations are biased in certain ways, like maybe the the entire population that's researched is is in, you know, the state of Oregon, for example, like that's a that's quite a bias. So I guess this is a broad question, but like are there some more fundamental issues with the data sets and the way that we're conducting medical research? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting you know, point. We could probably talk about this for, uh, for hours. It's one of my favorite topics. So I think there's a few things you mentioned. So nutritional research is very problematic and very hard to do properly. And that's why we basically know nothing, nothing concrete. Like everything causes cancer and everything cures cancer, basically, right? For a few exceptions. But. So it all works out. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's impossible. But that's just because there's so much bias, right? It's so it's so hard to do a proper nutritional trial because it's really hard to randomize patients into, you know, eating chocolate and not eating chocolate for a year. But then I say a year. But the problem is, and then we get into the effect size discussion. If you're going to investigate if chocolate causes cancer, you need to observe these people for like 50 years. And not only should you make sure they eat chocolate every week, but you should also make sure they don't smoke, they don't exercise too too much or too little, they don't drink alcohol, etc., etc., because otherwise you just keep on introducing bias that you can't at some point correct for anymore. Um, so it, it, nutritional trials are just super hard and having enormous samples will help and then also a very powerful computer to try to correct for all the other variables. So basically you need to measure everything and then have... A- a lot of data, data sets of, of a size that we currently you know, don't know. And that, again, is, I think, why what we are trying to do with Castor is, you know, is very interesting because potentially we could have that with the technology that we're trying to develop. But then you start could answer these questions. So to the other part of the question, you can calculate a sample size if you know an effect size. So there's basically some statistical tools and, and tests you can use to determine how many people should I include in my trial. And usually that's based on previous evidence for more experimental trials where you see, okay, you know, what we've seen so far in the literature is drug B improves you know a patient's performance by 10%. So we have a certain effect size. And from that effect size, we can have a you know, very nice mathematical calculation that determines how many people should we include in this trial to prove with you know a 95 percent um, at a significance level which is a different discussion altogether i don't want to get into that but that's our new intervention is, is better uh, i think that's quite solid but that works really well when you do a, you know a controlled trial and have a very clear idea of effect size and i think in many scenarios that's not you know we don't have previous literature or we can't, you know, create a controlled setting like like nutritional research, for instance. So, um, yeah, like I said, we can talk about this for hours, and it really depends on what you're investigating and what kind of research you're trying to do. And sometimes it's just not possible to do a larger study because it gets too expensive. Um, so, in epidemiology, you have to be pragmatic as well. So, pragmatism is also something you have to take into account. You have a limited budget. There's time constraints. How many people can you recruit into your study in a certain period of time? So, these are all constraints that that are put on, you know, in, in real world research that you have to deal with and, and sometimes that determines that the study can't run any longer or that you can't recruit any more patients and yeah the, the evidence suffers from that and that's what I was trying to, to say in the beginning when you're looking at the human race as an alien it's just super confusing because all these problems will be solved by you know collaborating much much more and and pooling resources to 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 run these larger trials uh, efficiently and I'm not saying large trials are the answer to everything, so I'm not sure how many epidemiologists and scientists listen to this podcast, but there's a few sort of uh, things I'm saying that are a little bit controversial, but 
I think it would solve a lot of problems. And especially if we standardize the data, then at least, you know, at least all these people that are reinventing the wheel can contribute to sort of the, the greater cause and, and ultimately help answer these, these questions that we've so far failed to, uh, failed to answer. Let's go a little more controversial. So you could imagine a world where I walk into a medical research facility to talk to a researcher or to do a survey, or even if I'm doing something, some kind of survey at home, you can imagine where you walk into some sort of room, the room's got cameras, it's got scanners, and uh, instead of asking you what you're feeling, it just derives data from your body, or you know, it takes a blood sample from you, or a stool sample. To take this even further, you can imagine a device that you just walk around with all the time that surveils you all the time and uh, gathers data and would be pulled into some sort of repository that people could do mass data analysis over. And, and if you imagine that that kind of surveillance for the purpose of research, and then you contrast it with how people kind of look at privacy today, and they look at privacy as this all-important human right. And privacy is important. Obviously, we need privacy. But I think people underestimate how much value we could get if we were a little less conscious of our privacy, if we were a little more willing to share data and think deeply about maybe, like, how do we... I know people do think about anonymizing data, and I know anonymizing data sets is quite hard. But I, I almost feel like we're at such the early stages of the conversations that we need to have really around privacy and, and data because of, I mean, most people talk about privacy in the sense that, oh, this is for protecting me. But but fewer people, I think, talk about the value and the economies of scale to unleashing those data sets, to, to perhaps, you know, anonymizing the data sets that governments have and opening them up to to people or anonymizing the data sets hospitals have and opening them up to people do you think much about this this privacy slash surveillance versus the large-scale advantages we could have from having these data sets that are currently sort of stigmatized to, to be made publicly available be made publicly available yeah I, I think about it a lot um that's actually why we created a tool called My Consent. Um, so that's a dynamic consent platform that we're integrating with uh, with our EDC platform. Basically, putting the the citizen in control of their of their data. Um, so there's lots of initiatives going around in the world for for you know citizen contributed data. And I think the solution to the challenges that you mentioned is you know as a hospital you can't really decide for your patients if uh, if you can share that data and if you anonymize it quote unquote you know because there's always the problem with um, with the one legged you know, one-legged man with uh, with diabetes, for instance, right? There's not that many patients with that profile. So even if you anonymize the data, it's still, you know, sometimes possible to identify who, who the patient or citizen is. So if you move that question from the entity that holds the data to the, what I would say, what should be the owner of the data, usually, you know, patients and citizens aren't the owner of the data, but I think it actually makes sense if they are and ask them, so do you want to contribute your data, either anonymously or not? And what specifically do we do you want to contribute to the cause and you know what other restrictions are there? So if you put them in control, I think that makes a makes a lot of sense. And that's the way I'd I'd want to solve that because so for me on a personal level, I love to contribute to my data to science or um, you know, I wear a uh, Fitbit or actually a, 
a Garmin, you know, device every day, an activity tracker, I should say. And I love looking at my data, and I would love to 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 contribute my data to to some you know project that could help the world. But I understand that some people don't want to do that, and I think we should educate them on the value of their data. So I totally agree with you that more effort should be put in, you know, not focusing on the negative sides of things, but also focusing on the value and the things that you could bring to the world by contributing to data, but mostly you know, giving people real control over what goes where. You know, that's also the spirit of the GDPR. I'm not sure how, know, how familiar you are with that, but you know, knowing where your data are, knowing who has your data, knowing what they're using it for, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. So f- for me with Castor, of course, privacy is enormously important for us. And, and you know, we do everything we can to secure data and to, to ensure everyone's privacy. And so far, we've been exceptionally good at that. And what we're trying to do is involve the patient to to put them in control of who can reuse their data and, and who can access it. So I think if you provide the technology, if you provide a platform where people can share data, their own personal privacy-sensitive data with confidence, um, I think we can start to see a shift in, in in that sort of attitude towards uh, towards privacy. But if you just you know throw it out in the open and or give Google access to your EHR, you know what they did in uh, in the UK. Um, you're just going to have enormous amounts of piled on top of you. Wait, what happened there? Well, I don't know about this Google and... I'm not sure how this deal was set up, but Google DeepMind was given access to NHS hospital data uh, in the UK. And it was anonymized, apparently. But yeah, of course, the like the anonymous data discussion is always raging. And that happened here too. And I don't know all the details, but there was a lot of public outrage over the fact that Google got access to the data. And ultimately, I think the, the consensus was that, that it shouldn't have gotten access from NHS. And NHS couldn't have decided that on their own. But you'd have to look up the details. But it was a, it's still an ongoing scandal, I think. So I still see news articles popping up. Did it get de-anonymized? Yeah, it did, oh. but it's well de-anonymized. Sorry, I don't think so. I misunderstood your question. But did somebody mine the data set and derive who? Because because anonymization is like you basically hide the relevant fields that you need to to identify the user. So you'll hide the name. You'll hide some personally identifiable characteristic, like this person has three freckles above their nose. You know things like that. Things that are highly identifiable. So if you remove those, then you can anonymize a data set. So did it get de-anonymized or were people just concerned that, hey, I don't want this data out there, even if it is supposedly anonymized? I'd have to look up the particulars, to be honest. I just know that a lot of people agree that they didn't follow, follow proper procedure. And I don't know to what extent it was anonymized or de-anonymized. But I think, I think a lot of the people were very worried that it wasn't anonymized enough and it could potentially be de-anonymized by something as powerful as Google, uh, as Google DeepMind. But just the fact that even on anonymous data, I mean, some you know, an entity as powerful as Google or the technology that they have, uh, you could understand that patients would feel uncomfortable that their data is going into this, you know, enormous uh, machine, even if it's uh, anonymized. Because yeah, you know what 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 else Google has on you, right? So uh, the profiling side of things, like you take Facebook data, Google data, and then you throw in NHS data. How hard can it be to start? You know, creating profiles and, and starting to sort of put one on one together and 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 discovering that you know this guy with this Facebook profile actually also has diabetes. I think that's the fear, and I think so. Just throwing it out there and then giving an entity access to it, I don't think that's uh, that's the right way to go. But I agree with you that there's a lot of value in it. But uh, I think we should just enable people to give access and and make it very clear what the value is and focus on that. So you know, clear explanations and an easy to use tool that allows them to easily give access to to this value. Data. It's actually a great anecdote because if Google was able to de-anonymize that data or Facebook was able to de-anonymize that data, then you know they could use it to say, oh, this person has diabetes 
to let's sell them diabetes drugs or let's change their insurance rates. And it's certainly, you know, it could be problematic if you're giving that information to the same company that's serving you ads. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about the company. So you, you went from this place where you just hacked together this MVP yourself, you sold it to some people you knew, and then you just went, like, when did you decide to scale? When did you kind of realize, oh, this is actually something that, that could scale to being a company as opposed to just being this lifestyle business that I just sell to my friends? Yeah, so I think from the beginning, I already planned to to you know scale the business. So I was never planning to to create a business that was you know revolving around consultancy or bespoke you know custom work. Because the, the whole idea was to create a platform that was self-service. Because I saw these researchers struggle with using the tools that already existed because they were too complex or you know required server and and. and program knowledge. So the whole point was to create something that they could use on their own without external help. And you know, quite quickly I started to see that it sold really easily. So there was there was a great market fit from the beginning. So I while I was doing my PhD, so I was doing my PhD four days a week and then one day a week I was doing caster. Um quite quickly I saw okay this can actually work and you know we were I think five people in two thousand fifteen and we were already, you know, close to closing our biggest contract with an academic hospital in the Netherlands that wanted to provide our platform to all their researchers. And at that you know moment in time I felt like wow, you know, this can this can really take off. This can be big company. So I really always invested all the money back into the business um, to make sure we could grow as much as we can. And I actually never paid myself any salary because I was doing my PhD as well. And, you know, use that to grow the company until about last year when we got this um, European grant. So that's not an investment, but a grant, 1.1 million that helped us grow even faster. Uh, and then this year we got our series A of 6.25 million dollars. And that's basically because I saw that, you know, the company is doing great. We're market leader in the Netherlands, doing really well in Europe and in the UK, for instance. But, you know, we're trying to make a difference in medical research. And, you know, I didn't quit my my career as a medical doctor to just become rich. The, the point is, you know, I want to make want to make a difference in the world. And to really have an impact on medical research, you need to also be in the US because the US is the largest producer of, of scientific publication, scientific output. And quite quickly, it became clear, okay, you know, we are not here to just build an enormous company or to make an enormous profit. We feel, you know, we really want to have impact and to have impact on medical research, we need to be in the US. And I think quite quickly, I... I saw that, you know, bootstrapping all the way until, you know, dominating the U.S. market is going to take a long, long time because the U.S. is an expensive place to, to, to grow your business rapidly. So we decided to raise additional funding to be able to uh, do that faster. And that's basically where we are today. So it's, it's been a very organic process that's mostly driven by the yeah, desire to, to have impact and basically estimating how long it would take us to, to bootstrap versus you know raising money. And in the end, that, that got us here. And so that's the focus now, basically bringing the technology also to the U.S. and making sure uh, people you know start capturing their data in a proper way and, and standardizing and sharing it as much as possible. The go-to-market for this kind of company is interesting because it's a fairly niche product. It's something that people definitely want. So I'm really curious about how you expand. If you're, if you're saying, we're going to go into the United States because that's the fertile ground, how do you start to get it to people? Where Do you, do you start with universities? Do you start just uh, hitting people with Google ads? What do you do? So what always used to work really well is just start with the individual researcher. 
So we in the Netherlands, we we depend a lot on word of mouth. So the strategy that's worked really well for us so far is to make sure a few people in the university uh, start using the platform. And then they basically show their neighbors and colleagues. And so you have, you know, PhD students sharing a room and they're like, whoa, what's that, you know, what was that you're using? I need that too. That, that's a really powerful way to grow. Um, so the strategy is to, to get, you know, the, the initial people on the platform and that can be through, through colleagues, obviously through referrals, uh, but also through, you know, directly engaging with them at events. So for us, you know, events are a good way to make some first contacts. And then when you have your first contacts and, you know, the platform works so well and, you know, the, the customer support that we provide is valued so much that most, you know, most of our users turn into evangelists. We have a very high net promoter score, for instance. And so when our users turn into evangelists, we can also ask them to introduce us to their colleagues or to set up a demo, for instance. So that's so far been our best go-to-market strategy, get that first user in. And obviously, they can also be through uh, through marketing. So we're running, you know, obviously, we're, we're ramping on marketing now um, with real content that helps them. So I wrote, for instance, a blog post with uh, 50 tips for people's PhDs. So, you know, you're running a PhD and there's all kinds of things you can do to make that whole process more efficient. So I basically created a blog post that lists per, you know, sort of category, all kinds of tips to, to you know, make your life content easier marketing. or to, yeah, exactly, content marketing. And that sort of content works really well to get PhD students to the platform. And then, you know, of course, we show them the platform and then get them to use it. And so that, that's that been really successful. Start with the individual researcher, you know, meet them at events, you know, uh, content marketing, maybe interact with them directly or through their colleagues, and then go from there into a department license and from there to an institute license. Um, that's, that's the strategy that works uh, really well and is, you know, very organic also because it means you have lots of happy users in the institute already versus a top-down approach where you try to implement your solution you know from through say this, the chief information officer well there's no buy-in from from the researchers it can work especially with a product that that you know does its job and, and is loved by your users but uh, i prefer the, the bottom-up approach where you already have buy-in from all the people that actually have to use a product tell me more about scaling so when you went to sorry, I guess you raised six point two five million. That was how many months ago? Uh, like two months ago. Two months ago, okay. And then before that, the largest amount of funding you had gotten was one point one million, which was when a grant. It was a grant, right? It was May two thousand seventeen. Two thousand seventeen. So when you get an injection of capital, what do you do? Do you start to map out where the company is going, and then start to think about who you're going to hire, and then kind of just add up how much you're going to have to pay them and you know do a timeline over 18 months i mean what do you do when you raise you know when you suddenly get a chunk of change i think you'll never get that amount of money without you know providing some form of plan so for both the grant and the investment you know we really had to come up with a plan like what's the timeline what are we going to do to the product what are we going to do sales and marketing so we actually have a very detailed plan but it also includes capacity that defines so for the grant it was more product focused so it was um, okay we're going to build this module this module this module this is the expected outcome this is what and how it will work this is how we're going to get it to our users and that's this many person months and that many person months so basically have a whole plan of capacity for what you're trying to build this is the uh, you know, sort of the, the grant setting and for the investment you really have to basically have built your investor model where you say okay we're going to make these key hires these are essential because of our strategy strategy and especially in the sales and marketing department you also try to define what the return will be basically so how is your own revenue also going to grow by adding these people because ultimately you know we need to 
start generating money instead of burning it. So it's a lot of Excel, to be honest. So uh, we've gone through, I think, 54 iterations of the model before we basically agreed to what we wanted to do exactly. And so it's, it's very specific, but it's really helpful also because in the beginning I was like a cowboy just, you know, hiring who I felt we needed at the time and not really thinking ahead too much. And, you know, the bigger you grow, the more structure you need. And I think it's really helpful to, to run the business now because it's very clear what the budget is um, for each role and, and who we need first and who we need next. And of course, if, if we find great talent, we hire them, but we at least we have some priori- prioritization in who we need first. So it does require a lot of planning, but and then it's just execution. So you come up with this plan, you define who we're going to hire, for what reasons, what kind of revenue they're going to generate. Uh, you define when you want to hire them, and that basically defines your priorities, and then you start recruiting. So the first pe- person you bring in is a, is a recruiter, for instance, to help you find people and to source them. And then, if, so for us, scaling is mostly recruiting. It's also spending more on marketing. It's also you know setting up our servers in the U.S. and and, and then opening our U.S. office. Um, so we just you know incorporated in the U.S. For instance, but mostly you know it's recruiting, so finding the best possible talent to help us achieve this goal, and of course scaling is also setting up the processes to make those things run smoothly. So we had no process whatsoever around interviewing or like how do you do assessments for a developer, right? So half our basically half our companies is developers or product related roles. So what kind of assessments do you do? So when you start scaling, you want that you want that to be a process because you want to be able to compare candidates to each other and you want the candidate to feel that they're working with a professional company where they get prompt replies and where there's a certain timeline that we stick to basically. And that's also part of scaling, defining processes so things run efficiently and and not everything is in one person's head, but you can actually have a team that follows the same process to create a very consistent experience for candidates. I think that's, that's extremely important when uh, when scaling because otherwise everything is just going to crash and burn sooner rather than later. And it's funny actually to hear me say that because I'm totally not a process guy. I'm really you've the, had to become one. Let's wing it. Yeah, I've brought in people who are good at that, but I've also had to become one. So I, I do value processes a lot more than I than I used to when we were just five people. Then it was just me coming up with ideas and executing together with uh, with the other four. I believe and that. Now, uh, it's a bit more process driven. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I think if you learn to fall in love with process because with uh, you, you learn that the lack of process is flying blind, and that's how you end up you know, suddenly out of money or with some sort of outage and no idea how to deal with it or some sort of huge gap in, in features or miscommunication. and Unhappy people mostly also. Like, I th- I'm surprised at how quickly people, you know, for instance, burn out if there's, you know, no communication, no processes, nothing taking care. Like, it just becomes super stressful. With five people, communication is easy. You have 15 people. Yeah, it's an exponential function. It suddenly stops working, right? So there, there's, depends on the group of people. But at some point, communication starts failing without some kind of process or thought behind that. Yeah. I know we're almost out of time. I want to get your picture on the future a little bit because... You've, you've got a front row seat to a lot of change that's happening in, in medical research and in technology. So from the shows that I have done, there are some changes going on in, in medicine that seem exciting. Just the, the basic application of, of software tools and changes in hardware to the world of medicine. I mean, you've got the drop-in cost of device creation. It's becoming much easier to rapidly prototype hardware. You've got widespread access to supercomputers, basically, so that people can do interesting data analysis. And I don't know how far along things like protein modeling for coming up with drug ideas. I don't know how far along that is, but I'd love to get any any thoughts you have on 
the future of medical technology, whether you're talking about device creation or the changes in the pharmaceutical industry, what is exciting to you? Or is nothing changing? Is it still gated by something like making CRISPR viable? It's, yeah, it was a very you know broad question. I think there's there's so many. It's almost unfair if you see the innovation in medicine versus medical research. That's crazy. Like the how little innovation there is in, in the medical research process and how we conduct medical research as opposed to the field of medicine where there's so many exciting things going on. So there's nothing specific that I feel is, you know, jumps out at me, to be honest. I'm just happy to see that there's so many people in the world doing, you know, amazing things to, to you know, make sure people live healthily for longer. So I don't want to necessarily say lo- longer because I think we are quite old in the Western world, at least already. But uh, it's, it is very nice to, to live a healthy life. And for me, of course, what I'm interested in most is the thing that you mentioned before. So capturing data through sensors and capturing data without a specific purpose and standardizing it and, and giving people the, the option to contribute to studies. Like my dream is to come up with a Reddit April Fool's project. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but Reddit always does something cool on April Fool's where they involve the entire community. So what I would really love to do at some point is come up with this experiment um, where we involve all the Reddit users uh, into measuring something and contributing the data into one huge data set that's completely standardized and suddenly answers you know one pressing question that we've always tried to answer. So you know gather data from five million people in 24 hours. I mean something like that would be amazing for me. And I think slowly we're getting there with the smartphones, with more sensors, with like you said more affordable devices that you can, for instance, connect to your smartphone. So for me personally, with my background in in, in data. That's that's the most exciting for me to see that trend where you know people can capture all kinds of advanced data in their homes and then decide to contribute it to some cause to solve one of humanity's biggest problems. Um, that that's really where I also want to you know I want to be, be a part of that like, you know when that starts happening. Okay, well, Derek Arts, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Wow.